This podcast is brought to you by jewishpodcasts.org. Start your very own podcast today at jewishpodcasts.org. This Torah class is brought to you by torahanytime.com. But I want to speak about communication. One of the things that I do is I meet with people all day long as a dating coach and a dating mentor to try to help people succeed in dating. Much of the problems that I see are really related to the fact that people's communication skills are terrible. And they don't have a plan in terms of what they plan on speaking about in their dates. Especially if they don't know how to communicate effectively and give praise effectively. Now, we know that it's not a good thing to be able to praise someone directly. But you need to learn how to praise an action. You need to learn how to praise an accomplishment. So I'm going to give you some, some, some discussions on that tonight. And we'll share a little bit of that. Because without proper communication, it's not possible to build what's called an emotional connection. And the emotional connection is what allows the dating to go from just plain dating to engagement and marriage. It's the person understanding and feeling that they know who you are. Oftentimes, when I hear people tell me, it's okay, but I'm just not feeling it. I know that there's a problem in the communication. I know that one of the people is not opening up. I know that one of the people is afraid to expose themselves. I know one of the people is not letting their, or like, or like they don't want to expose their vulnerability. But in order for the other individual to be able to connect with you, they have to have a window into your neshama. They have to have a window into your soul. So if a person can become an effective communicator, that's half the battle to becoming a kala or a chasa. I'm telling you, it's so important. One of the greatest books that I believe that was written on the subject was written by a guy, Dale Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. You can get it on Amazon for 3 or $4. It's, in my opinion, Shaveh Million, worth millions. Because if you can take some of the principles that that person teaches in that book and apply them to your life, you'll learn how to become an effective communicator. And you can use these skills in dating, and as a husband, and as a wife, and as a friend, and as a worker, and as an employer. So, again, if anyone out there, anywhere in the world that needs help with that, all you have to do is reach out to me. I'm very easily found Dr. Jack Dating. Okay, now, people can give all kinds of reasons why they're hesitant to praise others. And one of the key things that I tell people when they're on dates, when I meet with them as, you know, as their dating coach, is make sure you listen carefully to what they're saying if they've had, what they're, in terms of what their work is and how they spent their day, and praise them. Oh, that's interesting. Well, that was a very, that was an amazing success. That's so important. Sometimes praise might be counterproductive, but in the vast majority of instances, when you sincerely praise someone, you're doing that person a great service. Many times it was heard from Chaim Shmuelavitz, the Rosh Hashiv of the Mirror, that he said in the name of Yisrael Salanto, who was one of the great giants of the Muslim movement, that praising others is a spiritual act. It's like a mitzvah, as opposed to flattery, which is a compliment you give someone in order just to get something for them in return. Sincere praise expresses your recognition of someone's good qualities or positive action. This is the way to build up someone. So let me just jump ahead and share an incredible story with you. This is an absolutely amazing story that really hits home in terms of what I want to teach you tonight. Let me just find it. Listen to this. Rav Avram Baharan is an author of a major sefer and the principal of a girl's high school in Israel. He tells the story of a young man who wanted to marry a very intelligent girl. He asked Rabbi Haran if he could suggest any girls in his, from his Beis Yaakov who graduated, who he felt were very intelligent girls. Rabbi Haran suggested a number of possibilities, but whenever the fellow met one of the girls, his reaction was, she might be bright, she might be intelligent, but she doesn't meet my standards. I expect better. I want even a higher quality girl. 
Someone suggested, one of the graduates of the school, a girl that had gone to Rabaran's uh, Beis Yaakov, and the fellow was highly impressed after meeting her. After the first meeting, he spoke to Rabaran and expressed how pleased he was with the intelligence of this young lady. Wow! He tells Rabaran, she's very special. Rabaran, however, knew that this girl was not so intelligent as the other girls that he had met. He didn't figure it out. What's going on here? Why is he... So I'm sorry to use the language. Why is he digging this girl out much more than the other girls who are more intelligent, who are much more sophisticated? But the young man told him, this is one of the most amazing, intelligent girls I've ever met. She's an incredible... She's an incredible conversationalist. We got it. So she's an incredible conversationalist. A few days later, Rabbi Aran asked the girl, could you please describe to me how you respond to what he says on dates? And she replied, I, t- I like the boy very much. I don't always understand everything that he's saying, but I enjoy the way he expresses himself. Throughout the conversation, I keep saying things like, that's so interesting. That's brilliant. What a deep idea. Wow, tell me more. We both enjoy the dates very much. This girl was a genius at how to buy a guy. They got married, and a few months later, Rabaran met his former student and asked her, how are things going? How's the marriage? She said, just wonderful. He keeps talking a lot, and I enjoy responding with the same kind of comments I met when I dated. Rabaran concluded, there's a lot to learn here from this girl. This young lady was brighter in the area of intelligence than all the other girls combined in the classroom. This is critical. She basically made the guy feel like a million dollars. That's what we have to do when we date. Make the other person feel special. And I'll get into that a little bit tonight. So I needed to jump ahead and tell you this because I wanted to make sure that we you know, we really understood that word. Keeping pray, words of praise... I just have to make sure... This is on... Keeping words of praise on the tips of our tongue will make it easier for us to be able to express them. If words don't come easily to you, plan them out ahead of time. So I always tell my students and my clients, you have certain you have to have certain key words in your vocabulary. I'm going to mention a few. Excellent. Delightful. Amazing. And for younger generation, that's so cool. Right? Where's my water? Is it here? Okay. Fantastic. Fascinating. Extraordinary. Even more important is the ability to communicate statements that express positivity. Again, these statements should come from the heart. They shouldn't look and seem fake. The following examples can get you started on the right path. That's so admirable what you did. Again, I did not compliment the person. I complimented the action. Some people don't want, they feel uncomfortable with praise. Or, that's so touching what you said. It must be so cool that people can depend on you. I enjoyed the Devar Torah immensely. 
It must feel so secure to know that you're handling things. I find what you said so calming. It's so impressive the way you spoke. That's such an insightful comment. That action was so courageous. That was so thoughtful of you. That was one of the nicest things anyone ever said to me. That action is so admirable. You have my respect. That made my day. Your caring means a lot to me. Your feedback is tremendously helpful. I really felt that it helped me a lot. Your understanding of my circumstances means a lot to me. These are so important. These are golden nuggets. When a person learns how to express themselves and makes the other person feel special. I'm going to show you stories tonight. What happens when that does not take place? Here we go. Ready? Beautiful story. My husband and I were married a week after Shavuos, but it took until Purim, nine months later, until our relationship was the kind I always prayed for and wished for. My husband was quiet, but kind. He had difficulty expressing himself. I knew he cared about me, but this was shown by the actions he did for me, rather by anything he said. But I wanted to hear it, and he wasn't the guy to communicate. The first Purim after we were married, we went to my parents' house for the Sauda. I was the last child in our family to get married, and the house was filled with my married siblings and their children. My husband didn't seem to be the type to get drunk, but he announced at the Sauda, I've never been drunk on Purim in my life. In honor of my first year of being married, I'm going to drink until I don't know the difference between praising Mordechai and cursing Haman. My husband mixed his drinks, which is not a small thing to do, and he drank wine, beer, and whiskey, and became drunk surprisingly quickly. He then stood up and pounded on the table to get everyone quiet. In a booming loud voice, he said, I've never really done this properly, but I want to tell everyone how happy I am to be a member of this wonderful family. I thank my father-in-law and my mother-in-law for raising such an amazing daughter who is now my wife. I thank Hashem for sending me the most terrific wife in the whole world. May we have many joyous years together. L'chaim everyone. My husband's true feelings that were expressed at Purim have reverberated in my mind every time I've heard anyone say L'chaim. She never forgets it. Since then my husband has been much more expressive with his positive feelings and I appreciate it so immensely. People need it. They need the expression from the other person. They cannot read your mind. Human beings are called medabrim, they're speakers. And they need to hear words of praise, words of communication. That's the connectivity. Story number two. From Yerushalayim. I live on Pani Meros Street in Yerushalayim, with, which translates to shining face, Pani Meros. It could refer to smiling, it could even mean having a radiant face. On a rainy day, I hailed a taxi and I told the driver that I was going to Pani Meros Street. The driver, who was 60 years old, commented, what a wonderful name for a street. And I agreed, you are right, she told the taxi driver. Do you know, did you know she says to the driver that it was named after a person who was a machaber of a book, who was the author of the book, which reminds us to, to smile at people. The taxi driver, who was a total stranger, said to me, I, pre- I appreciate so much that you told me I'm right. Do you know that I'm married 35 years? And my wife never tells me that I'm right. He was aching for it. He wanted that recognition, which people are starving for. And if you understood and you gave it to them, you can win a million dollars with them. 
What a shame, I thought to myself. I'm certain that she could find a lot of things to compliment her husband, regardless of the fact that they have differences of opinion. Okay. Story number three. I was furious at my husband. He was in a self-pitying mood. He was acting weak and wimpy. And I couldn't stand it. His complaining was getting on my nerves. And it took a tremendous amount of self-discipline for me not to shout him, Stop already. Be a man. Have betachin. Stop worrying so much. Put yourself together and gain control over yourself. Rule number one. People don't want to be around complainers. Please don't do it. You're going to find yourself to be sent off to the side and looked at as antisocial. Because here's the problem. I grew up in a house which was cheerful and happy. The general interaction between family members was upbeat. From a young age, we were taught never to complain. If you had a real problem, you discussed it to find solutions. Anyone who didn't feel well would express their feelings and would receive sincere concern. But we didn't immerse ourselves in self-pity. So I came from a home which did not really encourage self-pity and complaining. Earlier in our marriage, I would complain to my husband that he overdid it when he didn't feel well. If he was sick, he made it feel like he was dying. But he would angrily tell me that I didn't show chesed to him and that I was being insensitive to his needs. His response forced me to keep my feelings about his self-pity to myself. We didn't want to argue. Because he excelled at this kind of stuff of complaining. Just as I was feeling angry at my husband and holding myself back from sharing my opinion, a group of young girls came to our bungalow for a Torah class that I was giving. And I spent a long time preparing for it. With all my strength, I forced myself to enter a better state because I was feeling a little out of it because of my my husband. I put my entire heart and soul into giving the best share that I can. When my students left, my husband commented, You did such a great job. I heard you from the other room. You must have really inspired your Talmidos, your students. The anger that I felt before totally melted away. My husband didn't realize how much his praise meant to me. But I experienced a glow of appreciation from my husband's sincere words of praise. All he had to do was change the tide and walk away from self-pity and complaining to praise. And he made it feel like a million dollars. So important. Next story. I love to give compliments and praise, and I couldn't wait until I was married to be able to compliment and praise my husband. Bringing a smile to someone else's face is one of my greatest pleasures in life. It was a disappointment to me that after I was married, he always deflected my compliments. He wasn't interested in my compliments and my praise. When I praise you, I asked him, why do you always argue and say it's nothing? I've always reacted this way when people praise me, said my husband. When someone praises you and you belittle what they say, I told them, you make the other person feel bad. I don't want to make you feel bad, but I feel uncomfortable when I'm praised. Some people just don't like or are not comfortable with praise. So I asked them, what are you thinking about when I praise you? First of all, it makes me feel like I'm a Baal Gaiva if I'm accepting praise. But more than that, I feel I don't deserve the praise. I have so many faults. And there's so many positive qualities that I am missing, so I don't feel comfortable receiving the praise. Also, when I'm praised, I'm afraid you'll want more from me than I'm able to give you. Let's speak to our rabbi. So my husband did. He was told that pursuing praise and honor is a fault if you run after it. But if someone sincerely praises you, the right thing is to say thank you. Years ago, I took this course on Bill Carnegie, How to Win Friends and Influence People. And one of the things they taught us, if someone says to you, wow, that was a great challenge, don't ever say, oh, it's nothing. If someone does, says a, a praise to you, the right response is thank you. Don't minimize what you did. because 
you're giving, you're, he loses the fact, the fact, the good feeling of having praised you, and you, and you, you lower it. Our rabbi told us, if you really appreciate praise, be honest and say thank you. That's fine. Listening might seem passive because you just stand and sit there and let the words enter your ears. But how many times do I sit with people and when I help them create their top 10 list, one of the things I tell them to look for a great listener. Especially if the person is a big talker. If people are big talkers, they need great listeners. Right? And that's very important. And people are not such great talkers, they need people who are great talkers. As their spouse. Listening can be one of the greatest acts of kindness you can do for someone. As a person speaks to you, and you listen carefully to what they're telling you, that person knows that they, you care, because you're giving them the time to listen. And he considers what's being said is important. Listening is a powerful act of respect, kindness, and validation. Someone once said that the difference between a monologue and a dialogue is that in a monologue, one person talks to himself, and in a dialogue, two people talking to themselves. But if you live in a great marriage, and you listen carefully, that's not going to happen. It's going to be two people listening to each other. So when your spouse shares his or her feelings with you, it's not a good idea to say, you shouldn't feel this way. Because people can't make their feelings go away. For many people, expressing their feelings enables their feelings to become lighter. When someone gets it off their chest, so to speak, they just want a listening ear. They don't want you to judge them or evaluate them. Give them the right and the chance to talk about what worries them, about their problems, that bothers them. Some people insist on talking only about good topics. If someone complains to them about something, they'll say, don't talk about that. Be happy, don't worry. But if a person is not happy and does worry, you have to be nice to them and listen to them. Here's an example. A person who came to speak with a Tribunino Rebbe enjoyed telling the Rav his Torah thoughts, his Divri Torah, his Chidushim. Although the person spent a long time, took a lot of the Rav's time, he was long-winded, and whatever he said didn't have much content. The Rav would listen patiently. Someone once asked the Rav, why you wasted so much time on this guy? Why are you wasting so much of your dear time on this man? And the Rav said, smiling, isn't this a chesed to listen to people? How can I just cut him off? It's a chesed to be a great listener. When you enjoy listening to your spouse talk, Listening is something you're doing for yourself. However, when you find it difficult to listen, then what you're doing is an act of chesed, because you'd rather not, and you're doing it, you're giving them a tremendous feeling. I asked a fellow who was married for two weeks, before your wedding, I'm sure you heard a lot of advice about marriage from different people. What ideas helped you the most? You'd like to hear what advice people got. And was anything you heard not good for you? Counterproductive? So the young man said, much of the advice that I got before I got married was great. The only issue I have is I need to remember to implement what I heard. What was especially valuable? He was asked. I consider two pieces of advice the most helpful for me. One, don't try to find solutions when your spouse sounds as if they're complaining about something. Rather, just listen. Don't try to give them solutions. At that moment, they don't want solutions. They want an ozem akshiv. They want an ear that listens. My first impulse is to try to find a practical solution to their problem. But I was told to listen and to try to understand before saying anything. 
I see that when I do this, in my case, my wife feels so much better, and the issue is resolved just by helping her to talk about it and give her the opportunity to get it off her chest. Secondly, when I come home, another great piece of advice, even if I really want to be the first one to talk, I need to have the patience to listen to what my wife has to say first. And that could be the other way. That could be the wife talking about the husband. She so appreciates my listening ear. Before I was married, I was told, when your spouse complains, don't try to find solutions, just listen. I heard this from a few people, and I wanted to be a good spouse. Whenever my spouse had a complaint about anything, I would say, that's really rough, or I'm sorry that happened. After a month of this, they blew up at me. Why don't you give me any advice or suggestions? All I hear from you is statements of sympathy. Do you think I'm a baby? I want you to help me with solutions. I don't need you to make irrelevant comments. I have a great need to repeat my points over and over again. My husband is highly intelligent and understands what I say even before I finish the entire thought once. He used to become impatient with me and would try to stop me by saying, I hear you, I get it. Someone advised my husband to repeat my messages to show that, what I've, been, that I've been heard. But I know that he hears me, I still feel the need to repeat my points so I can feel satisfied that I've expressed myself adequately. So he spoke to a really intelligent rabbi. The rabbi told him, your wife wants to feel a close emotional connection with you. She does this by talking. It's similar to singing. People enjoy repeating the same song over and over again. You're doing your spouse a chesed by being patient when they repeat what they say. The more difficult it is, the greater is the reward. I tend to comment on what I see and this often arouses my husband's irritation. For example, I noticed a large water spot on my son's suede shoes. When I pointed this out to my son, my husband said to me, you're always bothering him about these little things. Leave him alone. It's a very cold day, I said in the car. You're so negative, my husband responded. Why do you always notice what you don't like? Although I'm a highly qualified professional with a position of responsibility, my, my husband often says to me that at home I act like a child and he can't speak to me. By the way, <clears throat> I can't tell you how many therapists call me that are divorced. And they want my help. So some, sometimes they can be professionally trained and they're missing basic common sense of how to behave. I just had recently someone call me from the West Coast who's going on his third marriage and he's a therapist so if a person can't integrate Musr into their life all the secular training won't help you I was speaking I was teaching someone on the phone today about anger management out in the, again out in the west coast their secular therapists are telling them the best way to deal with anger is to take out your rage and throw things at walls is that a chutzpah is that stupid is that anti-Torah My husband's biggest complaint is that I don't listen to him when he speaks, and he's right. I do tend to space out when he talks, 
and I'm mentally far away, I drift, I go on my own journeys. With my friends and my clients, I'm usually a wonderful listener, but not with my husband, I just tune out. I was told to increase the amount of positive comments that I make, which is so critical. Make more positive comments, praise more. I, this means I give my husband as much praise and positive feedback as I could. Especially men, they come home, you know, they're dealing with the middle of the word mulcha, of lechem, right? That's mulchama, war. Mulchama, the middle of that word is lechem. Lechem means he has to go out and make a living. So when he goes out to make a living, he has to battle for it. So he needs, a, he needs words of praise. He needs words that lift his ego. Also doing the same to our children, which is giving them more praise and positive feedback. And going out of my way to make positive comments in general about scenery. Oh, it's a gorgeous day today. Beautiful sky. I hear the birds singing. Try to pay attention to the subtleties of life. One of the greatest lessons that I got from my Rebbe, Ravik de Miller, was that. That we pay attention to the things people don't pay attention to. He taught us how to listen for the birds. He taught us how to appreciate the beautiful white cloud. He taught us how to appreciate that we walk in the street. He told us to take nothing for granted. He taught us how to pay attention to the budding of the, of the trees. He taught us how to pay attention to the, how the trees automatically have these teeth that cuff, cut the leaves off in the middle of the fall. He helped us to sensitize us to, small, to these wonderful things that most people take for granted. And that's so important. So I was told, she says, to pay attention to the scenery. Oh, that's a magnificent paint job. That's a beautiful painting. Or oh, I love the way they fixed the park. About how gorgeous the weather is. I started being more careful about, about praising as many things as I could. The next thing I was told was to improve my listening skills with my husband and my children. I realized that this would take a lot of effort on my part, but it was well worth it. The way things are now, the way things used to be, I suffered a lot. But now that I committed myself to practicing praising, to making positive comments, and listening with all concentration, my marriage has improved 100%. Another story. When my son was a teenager, one of his favorite expressions was, What's the connection? It was especially annoying when he said this at a time when the family was having meals together. If someone would bring up a topic that he wasn't interested in, he would say, What's the connection? I thought he would grow out of this habit, but off and on, he kept it up for years. As he got older, I told him, when you get married and your wife makes a comment that you might seem to you irrelevant and on a different topic from what you were speaking about, please don't say that to your wife. It's going to make her feel very, very unhappy. I was so concerned that I repeated this every couple of months. The first time my son's kala ate a Shabbos meal at our house, I was relieved to see how open my son was to whatever she said. He had eliminated a bad habit from his lexicon. I'm so relieved to see that he doesn't use that language anymore, especially now that he's married. And now let's talk about how communication connects us. When a couple is able to have enjoyable conversation, those conversations build up a sense of connection. Again, when, especially when you're dating, you've got to learn how to build a dynamic kesher. You've got to get beyond the superficial talk. I recently, a couple of months back, had a girl who sat in front of me that wanted my help in, in coaching and shatchanas. She went out with a guy 33 times. She couldn't tell me anything about him. I said, what did you talk about for three and a half months? Almost nothing. So when I developed a top 10 list for her of things that she needed in a guy, 9 out of 10 he did not have. That means they did almost no, no real serious communicating when they dated. Communication is what connects. 
When a couple is able to have enjoyable conversation, those conversations build up a sense of connection. Couples differ as to what their communication needs are. Some couples can have a very happy marriage with minimal amount of conversation. And some individuals have a great need for longer conversations. A problem that needs to be worked out is when one party has a much greater need for conversation than the other. And you have to get it that when your, your spouse is feeling a lack of communication, you have to up it. Here's a story. I tend to be quiet and introverted. My wife is usually outgoing and talkative. And I always like that. I like to see when there's a, a cat in the room and there's a tiger in the room. I don't want two tigers and two cats. Right? She has told me a number of times, the man is saying, that the reason she decided to marry me is because she felt it was great for her to marry a good listener. And I was considered a good listener. A person who was talkative like her would compete for the right to talk when she wanted to do the talking. After we were married for over a year, my wife began to complain to me that I should speak to her more than I was doing, which I acknowledged was not too much because I wasn't the biggest talker. She still would like to do most of the talking in the house, but she was encouraging me now, please talk more. I often didn't have anything to say, and I appeared guarded and somewhat secretive. I saw that my wife was feeling bad about my absence from the conversation. I personally did not feel the need to speak, but my wife kept insisting that communication is a tool for Allah to allow us to get closer. So she was encouraging me to talk more. Since I hadn't the faintest idea of what to do, I spoke to a friend who was an expert in communication. I said, I need help. How do I improve my communication skills? How do I become more verbal? He gave me a number of suggestions that I was able to put into practice. Listen up. First, ask questions. For example, if my wife tells me that someone just got engaged, I should ask questions like, Who's the chassan? Who's the kala? How old is the chassan? How old is the kala? How did they meet? Where they're planning to live? Who are their parents? What does the chassan's father do for a living? So ask questions about the topic. That'll get it going. Second, I should not tell my wife stories from books she has, or rather I should tell her stories about about people that she hasn't read yet. One of the things that I always encourage people to do on dates is that they should tell stories, prepare some good anecdotes. Stories stories are great time fillers. Also, stories allow you to jump to other subject matter. For example, let's say it's a story about schools. So now you can ask him or her about their opinions on education, about chinuch. If it's a story about shalom bayis, you can talk about that. If it's a story about travel, if it's a story about Eretz Yisrael. Stories are great to help you become a great conversationalist. So second, he was told to tell stories. Number one, to ask questions. Two, tell stories. Third, listen carefully to the comments other people make when they speak to someone in my presence. This would give me ideas on what I should comment on. When others are talking, take mental notes of what they're talking about. Even if it's about Trump, or the impeachment, whatever. So you have something to say about that subject. Next, fourth. You should observe things that happen in your presence wherever you are. Even when I walk or ride, there'll always be something to notice that are a little bit out of the ordinary. For example, did you see an act of chesed? Did you see anything new in the stores? Anything funny happen at school or at work or in shul? Fifth, I should listen to my wife's side of the conversation when she talks to her family and friends and acquire the patterns she would appreciate. See how she talks and try to acquire that. Everything is, a, is acquirable if you work at it. The mind is a muscle. It can be trained.
our conversations. Oh, let me start here. My wife was upset with me, but I did not know why. I would ask her, what's bothering you? And she would reply, nothing. Then I would ask her, what do you want me to do differently than I'm doing now? Why are you so upset? And she would say, who says I want you to do anything differently? I approached a family member of ours for advice on what I can do to improve my marriage. She wouldn't tell me what's wrong, but I'm certain that something is bothering her. What can I do? And the relative told me, I'm going to teach you how to write poetry. You probably won't write anything that will be included in the volumes of the world's greatest poems. But if you do what I suggest, your wife will feel that you are the greatest poet in the world. But I don't know anything about writing poetry, I insisted. Don't worry, it's quite simple, I was told. Here it is in a nutshell. Think of words you like. Write them down, then find a word that rhymes with each of those words. Make up sentences that end with both of those words. Your goal is to make your wife happy. Forget about grammar and any rules and about writing you might have learned in school. Don't worry if you write sounds that sounds corny. I know your wife will appreciate it immensely. Let me end with a beautiful story. So we, today, the most important thing we've learned about is how important conversation is. My story began 20 years ago, in May of 2000. My first husband, Menachem, was scheduled for surgery to repair a minor problem with his jaw that made it hard for him to swallow. He had been born with a lower jaw that protruded a bit. He had never had it surgically repaired because his insurance company considered it a cosmetic procedure and refused to cover the cost. By the time his insurance company approved the procedure, Menachem and I were happily married living in a welcoming out-of-town community where he worked as the director of a business. He was 28 and I was five years younger than him. We were blessed with a beautiful daughter, Eliza, who was only 11 months old at the time, and I was in my seventh month with our second child. Menachem was in perfect health. He was very involved in the community, and he also helped his father, who was a respected rabbi of the local shul. Menachem was not nervous about the surgery which was going to be done under general anesthesia. I had no reason to be anxious either. I had no idea exactly what the surgery involved. All I knew was that during the surgery, Menachem's jaw would be adjusted and his mouth would be taped shut. He would be discharged from the hospital the next day and would have to drink from a straw for a couple of weeks until the incision would heal. I was told this type of surgery was done all the time and was considered very low risk. In reality, the procedure was detailed and invasive. The surgeon had to cut out his lower jawbone and realign it completely to make it match up, removing some teeth in the process. His mouth was then stapled shut and a breathing tube was placed in his nose to allow him to breathe. Since I was working part-time as a secretary, I dropped Menachem off at the hospital and drove to my job. Later in the afternoon, I had a routine appointment at the OBGN's office and afterward I planned to visit Menachem who would be in recovery. I said goodbye to Menachem that morning, never dreaming that it would be the last time that I would see him. I had an ordinary morning at work and then went to pick up Eliza from daycare, taking her to my OB appointment. There were no signs that anything was wrong. Sometime in the early afternoon, my mother-in-law who lived a short distance away called the hospital to find out how her son was doing. She was transferred to the recovery room where a nurse picked up the phone. I'd like to ask about my son Menachem 
who just had jaw surgery, said my mother-in-law, how's he doing? She expected to hear that everything is fine. The nurse was caught off guard and blurted out the truth. I'm so sorry, ma'am, he didn't make it. He died. I'm so sorry. He didn't make it? What do you mean? My mother-in-law thought she misheard. He just passed away, the nurse said, before hanging up. It was a miracle my mother-in-law didn't have a heart attack from shock. Her son was a young man who had undergone what was supposed to be a very small minor surgery. How could this happen? What went wrong? To her credit, my mother-in-law didn't lose her presence of mind for a moment. Her first thought was to protect me. She wanted to prevent me from calling the hospital and hearing the horrible news. She was worried that I might be driving with the baby in the car and that I might lose control of the car and crash. She called my mother-in-law and they tried frantically to reach me, but I didn't hear the phone ring. Ultimately, they rushed to my OBG's office to tell me the tragic news in person. I got to my OB appointment with Aliza a few minutes later. I had no idea the tragedy had occurred and that my in-laws were waiting to speak to me when I got there. All I knew was that receptionists and nurses were exceptionally kind that day, offering to hold Aliza. Patting my arm and looking at me with, with compassion before ushering me into the midwife's office. I thought it was strange. I wasn't about to complain. The midwife completed the examination in record time, quickly checking the baby's heartbeat and telling me everything was fine with the baby. I wondered why she wasn't in the mood to schmooze and seemed so abrupt and quick. But she didn't keep me in suspense for long. When we were done, she walked me down the hallway and said in a voice filled with tremendous pain, Honey, your in-laws are here to speak with you. You are going to hear some very upsetting news. I want you to try and be strong. I remember feeling faint and beginning to shake. My first thought was that something was very wrong with my baby. But that didn't make sense. The midwife had just told me everything was okay with the baby. And why were my in-laws there? They weren't the type to intrude on my OBGYN appointments. The midwife took me to a private room where my in-laws were sitting. They, apparent, they, they, were, they appeared shunkering in grief, much older than they were as if the vitality was drained right out of them. It looked like the blood was drained out of their face. I sat down and I waited for the bad news. Menachem's surgery went well, but something happened in the recovery room, my father-in-law said. How is he? I asked. I'm sorry, it's all over, he said. And he started to cry. He couldn't control himself. How is he? I'm sorry, she, he said. And as he said those words, I felt myself hurling through a long, dark tunnel, sensing an empty, an empty void, a blackness that I could physically touch. It was an out-of-body experience that lasted a few seconds. Then I got hold of myself, I returned to the present, and began to cry as the reality sank in. How could this have ever happened? Menachem was so young, he wasn't supposed to die. My husband was a tall and exceptionally healthy young man, six foot seven, a giant, a gentle giant, who lifted 300 pound weights. He, was, he wasn't frail, he wasn't weak, and he had no medical issues. It didn't add up. My father-in-law remained strong, reminding me that Hashem doesn't make mistakes. That it was meant to be. There wasn't much time to wallow in our grief. The next few hours passed quickly as we noticed that the Hever Kadisha made funeral arrangements and tried to make sense of our new reality. We were discouraged from going to the hospital and seeing Menachem so that we would remember how he had appeared before the surgery, not his current state. I still had no idea exactly what had gone wrong and why Menachem had stopped breathing. During the first hours, we received confusing reports from the hospital staff who were desperately trying to hide the truth and protect their reputation. In an act of Ashkacha, of which there were many, Menachem had been working as the manager of a local funeral home. When his co-manager heard the news, he went to the hospital to identify Menachem. 
At that time, he obtained the original death report, which was later falsified. Without this document, we never have known what happened, and we wouldn't have had closure. According to the real report, the surgery went well, and the surgeon sent Menachem to the recovery room, where he was supposed to be under the care of a post-op nurse. During those crucial hours, with his jaw stapled shut, he needed to be under constant supervision. Unfortunately, the nurse had too many patients to care for that day and didn't check on Menachem during this critical time. He began waking up and while he was still semi-conscious, he pulled the breathing tube out of his nose. Since his mouth was stapled shut, he began to gasp for breath. Choking, desperately trying to get some air, for 20 long minutes Menachem fought for breath. His desperate struggle in a corner of the recovery room went unnoticed as he just died away. If he had been properly monitored, the nurse would have been giving him more oxygen by replacing the breathing tube or opening his surgical incision. By the time the nurse noticed his struggle, it was all over. She called frantically for backup, but despite the doctor's best efforts, it was too late to revive him. Menachem was a victim of gross medical negligence and a lack of post-op supervision. Despite the heartbreak of knowing that his, his death had been preventable, I never had any doubt that it was meant to be. I refused to wallow in guilt, to torture myself with what ifs and what could haves. In order to survive, I need to learn that the details of Menachem's tragic patira were not re- relevant. It was the Rabboni Sha'olam's Ratzon that he leave the world at the age of 28, less than three months before the birth of our son, who was his namesake. The Levi took place the following day, Wednesday at noon. Despite such short notice, over 1,400 people came, and there was a caravan of over 100 cars. Menachem had been beloved and respected member of our community, and his death was a personal loss for everyone. My mother and mother-in-law accompanied me to my husband's Aaron, as they had walked us to the chuppah two years earlier. During that critical time, my parents and my in-laws remained at my side doing whatever they could to ease my pain. For the time being, I remained in our apartment surrounded by familiar things and continued my routine. My due date was in mid-July, but I had a feeling my son would be born on his father's birthday two weeks later. Indeed, I went into labor on his birthday. My mother was with me the entire time, giving me courage and support I needed. Our beautiful little boy was born a few hours later as I had predicted on his father's birthday. This was a huge source of chizik for me. This baby was alert and healthy, blonde and blue-eyed. The spitting image of his departed father. As his, at his birth, we named him Menachem Chaim, adding the second name as a segula for a long life. A few months after my baby's birth, I settled with the hospital out of court. The hospital officials were not very forthcoming during the process, but I did receive a letter of apology from the surgeon. Though I could have sued the hospital for negligence and won a large amount of money, I had no energy and no desire to be dragged into a trial which could have taken up to 10 years and would have forced me to relive the tragedy for 10 years. I needed to move forward and not live in the past. Spending my limited energy fighting with the hospital would not bring my children's father back. I resolved to move past the trauma and be a staple single parent for my children who were still babies and needed my chizik and support in life. I remained a single mother for the next 16 years, but I never felt alone, I never felt abandoned. The Rabbana Sha'olam was with me all the time, sending me chizik in the most unexpected ways. Our community rallied around us, helping us physically, emotionally, and practically with whatever we needed. I worked on my emunah and betachan, feeling Hashem's hashkacha, and the manifold blessings in our lives. Often when I was feeling down, I would meet someone who would give me a smile, or make an uplifting comment which helped me get through my day. 
I sensed Menachem's presence whenever I felt overwhelmed or before I made any major decisions. It was almost as if he was right there. My two beautiful children thrived at school and enjoyed the love and support of both their grandparents. Although I was seriously considering Shaduchim in the ensuing years, I was very selective about the man who I would want to marry. He would have to be a dedicated father to my two orphan children, who had no memories of a real father. The children were doing well and I didn't want to shake their lives up. Throughout the years, I relied on the guidance of my Rav, who encouraged me to make small but substantial changes in our lives that brought me closer to Hashem. I joined the close-knit Tehillim group in which the women finished the entire Sefer Tehillim every day. I dove in the Kibbutz Tzadikim and I surrounded myself with positive people. Although I waited for my zivug for many years, ultimately it was worth the wait. I was introduced to my wonderful husband, the doctor, four years ago through a mutual friend. The way we met was also a story of Tremendous Hashkacha. My husband's sister, who is not religious, was making a Saturday waiting for her daughter. My husband, newly divorced, asked his Rav if he could attend the reception. His Rav Paskin that he should remain in the area for Shabbos and attend the Sunday brunch, even if his family would not understand. My husband, who was a true Ben Aliyah, listened to his Rav and ended up staying with a distant relative at that Shabbos so that he could attend the party on Sunday. His host, who was so impressed with him, gave his resume to a close friend of mine who set us up the rest, as they say, is his story. We were married a few months later and were blessed with a beautiful little boy just after our first anniversary. Our little one, now nearly three, is a delight and his older siblings love him dearly. He has brought our family great healing and great joy. We are looking forward to moving soon to be closer to my husband's children, whom we absolutely adore and hope to treasure every moment with them. Throughout the long and lonely years that brought us to where we are today, I kept speaking to my Rebbeim, who guided me and never stopped davening or believing for me in me for a single moment. The story has come full circle in another way. My son Menachem ben Menachem, is following in his father's footsteps, learning in Eretz Yisrael and doing very well. After he arrived at the yeshiva, we learned that my husband's first husband's best friend is on the staff there, and they formed a close bond. This week, Hashem willing, we are celebrating the wedding of our daughter, Aliza, a joyous celebration <clears throat> for our extended family. She's marrying a special man like her father who understands in her life. She was just 11 months old when she stood at her father's kever and cried out in her voice, Abba. As they lowered him into the ground, there wasn't a dry eye that day. Just the days before her chuppah, Aliza returned to her father's kever and invited him to the wedding, laying the invitation on his kever. We are sure that the dancing and singing will burst through to Shemaim and that Menachem will be there, dancing and sharing the simcha from Gan Eden. Thank you everyone so very much for coming for this wonderful presentation. You've just experienced another Torah class brought to you by TorahAnytime.com.